1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street. Here is your top five at five. End of the month, end of the quarter. Stocks coming off their first loss in days, and eyeing their worst three months since the pandemic began. Breaking overnight, President Biden said to announce he is tapping the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve again. This time, it could be the biggest ever. Leba weighs in. Slowdown in China. Is Beijing's COVID zero policy taking a toll? Two big economic numbers. Details ahead. Apple's record-breaking win streak cut short. But one analyst says it is just part of a bigger trend for investors looking for value. Later on, your morning RBI and an eye-popping stat on home prices you have got to hear. It is Thursday, March 52nd, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome, as always, from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Clearly, it is not March 52nd, but it feels that way, right? March just seems to go on forever. Today, finally going to warm up a bit here in the northeast. It was like 15 degrees the last number of mornings. Thankfully, today should be a little bit warmer. April. You cannot come soon enough. All right. Let us jump right now into your markets and your money. Stock futures, they are slightly higher. NASDAQ futures up the most, about three-tenths of 1%. That after some small losses for the major averages on Wednesday. Apple actually breaking its big win streak. We're going to get more on Apple in a few minutes. Energy and utilities performing well. In fact, closing at record highs yesterday as oil rose again. Speaking of oil, though, it is down this morning, about five bucks a barrel. That on continued lockdowns in China, as well as multiple reports that President Biden is said to announce the biggest ever strategic petroleum reserve release of all time. All that ahead of an OPEC and OPEC Plus meeting today. There's a lot going on with oil. We'll get more on the story with Halima Croft and more all through the day. In bonds, the 10-year yields at 2.33 percent, the two-year at 2.29. We'll give you those exact numbers because global investors are watching out for that potential inversion of the yield curve, where the interest rate on the two-year goes above the rate on the 10-year, seen by many as some kind of a crystal ball recession indicator. As you can see, we are not there yet. We're close, but we are not there yet. Well, around the world, mostly red arrows in Asia overnight, after China reported contractions in both manufacturing and services for the first time in nearly two years. Seems like the fault of the so-called and probably ill-fated zero COVID policy that is locking down cities from Shanghai to Shenzhen over just a tiny number of COVID cases. Meantime, Europe just getting its sea legs out from under it. Let's get the trade with Juliana Tattlebaum in our London newsroom. Good morning, Juliana.
2: Brian, good morning. Well, interestingly, it seems as though European investors are largely shrugging off that weakness that we saw overnight in Asia. We do have red across the board here, with the exception of the Swiss market, which is trading slightly higher this morning. But overall, the moves lower are are pretty contained. We've got the French market down about 13 basis points or so. Germany hovering around the flat line. UK market also hovering around the flat line. Um, It's been quite a month for European equities marching higher in lockstep with what you've seen stateside. But for the quarter overall, given this is the final trading day of the quarter, here's the picture. Stock 600 is on pace to break a seven-quarter win streak on pace for the worst quarter since Q1 of 2020. But one part of the market stands out, and that is the FTSE 100 here in the UK. For the quarter, we're up about 2.6%. The FTSE on pace for its sixth positive quarter in a row. Now, why is that? Uh, The FTSE 100 is over-indexed to oil and gas stocks as well as uh, financial stocks. But oil and gas, clearly the best performer over the month of March, and that has provided a boost to the overall index. So FTSE 100 has stood out, but overall for the quarter, uh, it's been a negative one for European equities, Brian.
1: All right, Julianna Tatelbaum, a lot of red there. Thank you very much. See you tomorrow. All right, now to our top story this morning. The price of crude oil here and overseas sharply lower. That on multiple reports that President Biden is set to announce another major release of oil from the country's Strategic Petroleum Reserve, according to a number of sources. Details of the announcement apparently are still being finalized, but it could be as many as 1 million barrels of oil per day for several months, totaling up to 180 million barrels overall. Once official, the move would mark the third SPR release since November, and the biggest one on record. For their part, Goldman Sachs analysts out today saying that while any release would likely help the oil market in the near term, It would not resolve the structural supply deficit they see coming in years ahead and could even spark more oil demand if prices fall. The president is due to speak at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time today on what the administration calls, quote, actions to reduce the impact of Putin's price hike on energy prices and lower gas prices at the pump for American families. Do keep in mind that the price of oil rose from $65 to $95 a barrel last year, Well, before the war in Ukraine began, RBC Salima Croft will weigh in on all this coming up later on this hour. All right, as oil falls, stocks have tended to rise, and that is no different this morning. Stock futures, they're up as oil is down. Let's talk about that and maybe get some good ideas for you going forward. Joining us once again is Josh Wine of Hennessy Funds. Josh, good morning. It does seem to be this uh, almost perfectly inverse relationship between the equity market. And the oil and commodity markets. What do you make of it?
3: Yeah, I mean, we we are absolutely talking even during earnings season, which is now largely over. But we were, you know, definitely talking more about energy and and you know geopolitical issues, and and that is ruling the day. And and I guess it goes without saying that every company is you know a user of energy and uh, and is a customer of a utility. So yeah, it makes sense, and and it's hard to see where things go. I mean, I you know I think we always have thought about energy and and our our, the availability of it in this country, but I think we never really thought that, you know, well, we're still subject to you know world you know prices. You know, it's a global market and and we we have to live live with that.
1: Is that really you think just due to the fears of the consumer just getting crushed at the gas pump? Nothing really perhaps has as much of a daily impact Mm -hmm. on so many Americans as the price of gas. Just the fear that consumer Mm -hmm. inflation going to crush the consumer corporate earnings and therefore hurt the stock market or is it something totally else
3: well, yeah no I, I mean i think that's right i think the headline about the absolute price of gas is is daunting you know three four or five dollars depending on where you live adjusted for inflation people like to point out that gas is no more expensive now than it was maybe you know 10 or 15 years ago but i think regardless of what that number actually is i think that people just see the headline i think that where it really where the rubber meets the road uh, as it were would be more in europe and so certainly this is a big global economy that is interconnected with the united states and you know economic growth is at risk and obviously that really comes into stark relief in europe where you know they are spending a lot more on on power and energy than we are here even though we yep we are also spending more so
1: No, Europe is getting crushed. They're paying about five to six times what we are. We've talked about it extensively, Josh. It is a very dire economic scenario in Europe. Uh, Let's leave you with some picks here, if we can, because one of the stocks that you like is a name well-known to our viewers. I've interviewed the CEO many times. It is Tellurian, the liquefied natural gas producer. They just announced they're going to start construction on their new driftwood project. They don't have full financing yet, but they're going to start. Listen, it's a very interesting trader-favorite stock. It's up 80% in 90 days, but that apparently not scaring you off. How come?
3: No, and, and absolutely. I mean, yeah, so Tellurian, you know, is a holding in the Hennessy, our Hennessy Gas Utility Fund. And so Chenier gets a lot of attention, which is also a holding in the Hennessy Gas Utility Fund, as well as in our uh, Hennessy Energy Transition Fund. But I would point out Tellurian is more of an early stage name, much smaller market cap. Uh, I believe it's just shy of $3 billion. And it's an integrated, you know, kind of upstream, midstream, and downstream uh, provider of liquefied natural gas. So they own, you know, some assets in the Haynesville Shale Formation, uh, Driftwood Pipeline Asset, as well as what you mentioned, which is the Driftwood LNG Exportation Facility in Southwest Louisiana that should be getting going. Uh, You know, phase one is set to start relatively soon, which they announced earlier this week. And and, you know, certainly if someone believes that geopolitical worries are over and that there will be no more energy insecurity on a global basis, then then this might not be the name for you. But certainly, as you know, and you've reported yeah. on quite well, I mean, this is here to stay. And, you know, liquefied natural gas, the exportation of it, the use of it overseas, you know, as much as we'd like to believe that we can yeah. renew our way out of this with wind and solar and all that, it's just not going to happen.
1: Yeah, and also natural gas, getting the blessing from the White House with that European right. agreement or desire to send more American gas overseas, basically saying, let's go ahead, get more natural gas to Europe and blunt the impact of Vladimir Putin. Josh I really appreciate you getting up sure. early. Thank you for coming on. And thank you it's for the fine. compliment. Appreciate it, Josh. Absolutely. All right. We are just getting started on a busy Thursday. And when we come back, your morning RBI on a simply staggering stat about new home prices that you have got to hear. Plus... Colleen McCroft is here on today's big OPEC meeting, potentially even bigger news from the White House. She just wrapped up a massive Middle East trip, lay out what she has learned coming up. But first, Apple's winning streak cut short at 11 straight days. What Wedbush's Joel Kalina says that means, Apple and the broader markets. We've got a lot to do. Glad you're up with us. We are back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back, and good Thursday morning. Caught a bit of March madness for Apple shares, dipping yesterday, ending an incredible 11-session win streak, and that, my friends, the longest one in nearly 20 years for the month. Apple stock is up about seven and a half percent. Your next guest says it is just one example of investors rotating back into high-quality tech names. Joel Kalina is head of media and tech trading at Wedbush Securities, and joins us now. Joel, uh, listen, we're in the media. We're simple folk. We like big numbers. We like round numbers. We like anything that sort of makes headlines. But yep. does Apple's 11-day win streak mean anything other than just kind of a a neat market stat? Does it stand for much?
5: Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. No, I mean uh, the reality is it doesn't. You know, obviously, uh, you know, the winning streak was was snapped yesterday as, as Apple fell slightly. Um, it, it's just it's just a stat, and we know the markets had an impressive rally over the past you know two weeks or so. Uh, when, when a lot of the tech names bottomed. Um, so, but I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, in kind of your intro. I think it's just more reflective of investors. There's, you know, flocking to, to just higher quality, you know, companies, especially within the tech, uh, you know, universe and, you know, really just kind of sticking with the horses that have uh, continued to produce, you know, quality results. And Apple obviously checks the boxes, um, in uncertain times. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we know cash balances have gotten to the highest level since since peak COVID in March 2020. And again, if you're sitting on money, where where can you put it to work um, without maybe getting blown up on a headline? Apple obviously, you know, fits the bill.
1: Is this the highest of the high quality names?
5: It's up there. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about these three companies. You have Apple, Microsoft and Google. I mean, there's there's very few companies on Earth right now that possess, you know, the trifecta of, you know, extremely strong growth, impressive margins, and enormous scale. Uh, so, I mean, the trend is your friend. I mean, Apple, I know there's a lot of kind of step, 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 you know, skeptics out there. It's an easy name, not the like, because it's, it's obviously become a lot more dull over the years, as, as especially as the, the iPhone cycle has, uh, has, has lengthened. Um, but really, everything they do touches the gold. Uh, and they continue to kind of you know innovate around whether it's the hardware subscriptions they're talking about. You know we saw some payment headlines yesterday as well. It'll be interesting to see how that develops. but kind of they're never content, and they kind of continue to evolve and kind of continue to bundle the uh, their services together and and just makes that ecosystem that much stickier. And you know obviously there's been some growth that's been curtailed over the past couple of quarters because of supply chain. Um, but their customers aren't aren't looking to switch you know ecosystems. And that's the, the key to the story. Um, you know, people are, have no problem waiting an extra four to six weeks for the next-gen iPhone. Um, you know, a, again, you're not going to leave the, the iOS to, to jump to another uh, another
3: system.
1: You aren't looking to switch or maybe can't switch, Joel. I'm not sure which one might be which. Uh, exactly. Are you concerned at all about reports of uh, – exactly, of, <laughs> who's switching? Are you concerned yeah. at all about reports of slowdowns, supply chain issues – semiconductor woes or consumer that simply holds on to their phones longer and most people I know aren't swapping their phone out every two years anymore their phone that they've got works just fine
5: yeah no exactly you know I just had an iPhone 6 until it finally kind of started smoking on me so I, I had I had to ditch that thing but uh no I, I think I think the issues with Apple are yeah you do want to be, you want to keep an eye on, on consumer demand um, I mean we all know that prices at the pumper through the roof. Um, signs of uh, weakness in, in, in China, especially, are starting, we're starting to see some red flags. Taiwan Semi, you know, their CEO really warned a couple of nights ago that they're seeing a significant slowdown in consumer electronics, you know, whether, you know, TVs, smartphones, uh, notebooks as well. So that's the concern is that obviously inflationary pressures continue to rise and, and clearly you're going to see consumers you know, push off those services, um, you know, those upgrades even further. So that's the risk to me to Apple. Um, but I think if you look at their their past earnings that we had about you know two and a half months ago, whenever it was in in, in late January, their earnings were probably looking back one of the best we saw in all of tech. Um, they're navigating the supply chain uh, headaches better than everyone else. Um, that's undisputed. But I guess when you're when you're the number one customer for hundreds of your suppliers, you you kind of have that luxury that you're not gonna you're not gonna be scrambling a, a, as much as you know as many of of, of your peers
1: iPhone 6, Joel. Does that have the rotary dial function? It, it, might, it might as well.
5: It was bar- it, Safari would barely open within the last days of it. So, yeah, it, it, was getting, it, was getting, it was getting close to the end, clearly.
1: Well, uh, you, you helped their earnings this quarter, Joel. You gave them a pop, one phone. Joel exactly. Kalina, Wedbush, appreciate it. Thank you. All right. <laughs> uh, all right, still on deck. Chris Rock breaking his silence over Will Smith's Oscar assault. Plus, new doubts over Russia's sincerity when it comes to peace talks with Ukraine, all that and more as Worldwide Exchange rolls on right after this.
0: Today's big number, $270 billion. That was the total economic
1: cost of natural catastrophes in 2021, according to data from the Swiss RE Institute. Around 40% of the total was covered by
0: insurance. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,
1: been a big uh, bad quarter for PayPal, Netflix, Zoom, and others. If you own those, it's been a, been a rough three months. All right. We're also watching shares of Tesla, the company reportedly extending its suspension of production at its Shanghai China factory by at least one more day. that over the city's COVID-19 lockdowns. that is according to numerous reports. The work stoppage at the plant will now last until at least tomorrow. Tesla is reportingly telling all employees to stay home and abide by government orders. Tesla's Shanghai plant is its first outside the U.S. and was responsible for producing half of Tesla's output last year. All right, let's get a check on some of this morning's other key headlines outside of the world of money and business. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with those. Good morning, Francis.
6: Hi, Brian. Good morning. We begin with a dangerous line of storms continuing a brutal charge in the east. Powerful winds ripped across Louisiana overnight. Possible tornado damage is seen here in the town of Big Branch. A twister touched down in the same area just one week ago. Now there are numerous reports of downed trees and power lines. Nearly four days after the world watched him get slapped on the Oscar stage, comedian Chris Rock made his first public appearance, kicking off his ego death tour in Boston. At the sold-out show, Rock told fans he didn't have a bunch to say about the incident, adding, I'm still kind of processing what happened. Meanwhile, the Academy said Will Smith was asked to leave the Oscars after the slap, but he refused. According to the group's Board of Governors, he could face disciplinary action, including suspension, expulsion, or other sanctions. Action icon Bruce Willis says he is stepping away from acting amid his battle with a devastating cognitive disease called aphasia. It can affect all aspects of communication, including speaking and understanding. Nearly two dozen people told the Los Angeles Times that concerns about his health have swirled for years and finally the fairy godfather of st peter's cinderella run is proving you can go home again sources tell espn that today coach shaheen holloway will be announced as the new men's head basketball coach for his alma mater seton hall coach holloway played for the pirates over 20 years ago and later was the team's assistant coach before his four seasons leading the Peacocks. so coming back full circle for him brian those are your headlines for this thursday
1: Going from the Peacocks to the Pirates, but what a heck of a run by St. Peter's. Amazing. Congrats to him and the entire team. Francis, thank you very much. Okay. All right, we've got a lot more to do here at Worldwide Exchange on deck. How Apple is reportedly looking to expand its supply chain security and the stocks that may stand to benefit. We're back with that and more right after this. Crude oil crushed as President Biden wants to release 180 million barrels of oil from America's Strategic Petroleum Reserve. All that is OPEC and Russia set to meet again today. As oil falls, stocks pop, futures higher on this final trading day of the month and the quarter. But Morgan Stanley says you should be putting your money right now. And a simply staggering stat about new home prices you have got to hear. It is your morning RBI, and it will. Wake you up. It's all happening on this Thursday, March 31st, and this is Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and good Thursday morning. Just about 530 a.m., and here's where we stand right now. Stock futures, they're moving a little bit higher. They are up, not a lot, but they are up across the board. We are seeing gains. Well, now I stand corrected. You see, when you talk about the futures at this hour, they can change like that because there's so thin volume that One guy comes in and makes a new trade and things move. Let's call the futures flat. NASDAQ futures up about two-tenths of 1%. Well, they say all good things must come to an end, like the Dow's four-day win streak, which did end yesterday. Still, March has been a pretty good month for investors in what has been a terrible quarter. Coming into this final day of the month, the NASDAQ is up 6% in March, The S&P 500 is up 5%, so we do have a little momentum right now. And remember, April is historically the best month of the year for stocks. In fact, according to LPL Financial, the S&P 500 has gone up 15 of the last 16 years, with an average gain of 3.1%. The only year the S&P fell in April was 2012, and that had a drop of less than 1%. So, history is on your side. But of course, in those years, we did not have a war in Europe, rampaging inflation, and a Fed ready to hike interest rates at every meeting. So please, history is good, but take history with a big fat grain of sea salt right now. Well, speaking of the Fed and rates, get a check on the bond market, there is no inversion right now between the two-year and the 10-year Ten-year yields at 2.33, about four ticks higher than the two-year. All right, side of the markets. Some of your top corporate stories making headlines right now. President Biden expected to invoke the Defense Production Act to increase production of minerals used to make electric vehicle batteries. These are minerals like lithium, nickel, graphite, cobalt, manganese. Reports say the move could happen as soon as this week. Apple reportedly looking at new sources of memory chips for its iPhones, including possibly a supplier in China. Its current suppliers include Micron and Samsung, but a production problem at another key partner in Japan last month caused problems for the company. Bloomberg reports Apple is now looking to diversify its supply network to minimize any future risk of disruption. And it's official. The CDC has dropped its COVID health warning on cruise ships. That notice was first imposed two years ago. So, all you cruisers, like my parents, by the way, who are leaving for a cruise this weekend, I think, can have a little more of an easier, restive time. Have fun. All right, now to Ukraine. Amid ongoing peace talks between both sides, the Pentagon continues to express doubts that Russia is actually scaling back its military operations in Ukraine, despite claims to the contrary from the Kremlin. NBC's Molly Hunter is back in Lviv, Ukraine, and joins us now with more. Molly, good morning or good afternoon for you. Where do we stand right now?
4: Brian, good morning. And it's not just the Pentagon that is uh, pouring cold water on Moscow's claims. We are seeing it overnight. So President Putin said that they are going to de-escalate around Kiev and Chernihiv. That's not happening. We are seeing Chernihiv, it's to the northeast of the capital, getting pounded overnight. He says they are going to focus uh, their battle in the east. That's also not happening. We were just down on the south coast, and we were a a few hundred miles, sorry, about 100 miles from Mikolayev, which is in the center of the coast. Mikolayev was getting pounded uh, in the last couple of days. Sirens were going off uh, this morning again there. So he's not just focusing on the east; He's still heavily pounding Mariupol, of course, in the southeast of the country, but really hoping to occupy that, we're told by intelligence analysts, so that they can start really moving west, Brian.
1: Back from Odessa, which is, I don't know if it's the only real port, but it's probably the main port for Ukraine as well, main transshipment point. They have been preparing, apparently, for an attack that is still not to come. Thank God, by the way. Uh, What are they talking about in Odessa? Because that is a key shipment point, maybe the key point for the country of Ukraine.
4: Yeah, the key point, absolutely, Brian. It's where Ukraine's Navy is based after 2014, uh, and it has been blockaded for the last several weeks. So we were there for several days earlier this week. We saw no cargo ships coming in. We didn't see any uh, Ukrainian military kind of coming in and out. Russia has blockaded that from Crimea across the Black Sea. Now, there in Odessa, it's an entirely different scene than it is here in Lviv. They are preparing for an attack. They know that city is on President Putin's wish list. It's target list. They have known for the last several weeks, and they have just been getting kind of increasingly angry. Anxious that an attack is going to come now what's interesting is that the city is you know sandbagged up to the rooftops uh, there are blockades there are military checkpoints at every single intersection talking to people they say they expect an attack tomorrow because they don't believe President Putin is going to focus his fight on the east they don't believe there's going to be a ceasefire they do not have any faith in the negotiating process that was happening in Istanbul and then there's a section of people Brian we should say who just don't think President Putin is going to pound the center of that historical beautiful city, where that 200-year-old opera house is. This city uh, lives large in the imagination, the history books uh, for Russians. There's a lot of nostalgia around this. It is a Russian-speaking city. Uh, so we're just going to have to wait and see. But I think what everyone agrees on is that no one takes President Putin at its word.
1: Molly Hunter in uh, Lviv, back from Odessa. Very important story there, Molly. We appreciate it. Be well. Thank you very much. All right, now back to oil and energy. And oil prices are lower right now, down about five bucks per barrel. That is, President Biden is reportedly going to announce a record release of oil from the emergency oil reserves. That release could be as much as a million barrels of oil per day for several months, totaling up to 180 million barrels. Some industry insiders have been calling on the White House for weeks to make such a move. Remember our interview with Hess CEO, John Hess, last month. Basically, the oil market now is in the intensive care unit, and uh, we need to act. The U.S. and the IEA need to announce a release of 120 million barrels uh, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. So if that move happens, it would mark the third SPR release since November and the biggest one ever on record. Remember, it was supposed to be just for emergencies. The president is due to speak at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time today on, quote, actions to reduce the impact of Putin's price hike on energy prices and lower gas prices at the pump for American families. According to the White House schedule, the president, of course, his his announcement will come as OPEC is also meeting today, along with OPEC plus its allies. That includes Russia, of course. And despite growing political pressure for the White House, no change in OPEC's output plans are expected. They are likely to continue to add just over 400,000 barrels of oil per day to the market. Joining us now to talk about all this is Halima Croft, head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets, CNBC contributor, and apparently still in the middle of a very extensive Middle Eastern trip. I saw your pictures from Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar. I think you're now in Dubai, Halima. Um, I want to get to OPEC in just a moment and what you have learned. uh, What do you make of this reported SPR release? Uh, It's a lot of oil. Should it dent prices and the market?
7: I mean, it is a lot of oil, Brian, and we're already seeing a price reaction right now. I think the key question is going to be, you know, if we're talking about a million barrels a day, that's significant. But the question is really going to be, what is the scale and the magnitude of the Russian losses that is going to be offsetting? In Dubai a couple days ago, Amos Huckstein, he's President Biden's top energy diplomat. He indicated that Russia was already losing 2 million barrels a day of exports because of this buyer strike. So the question is, if Russian losses expand, if we're potentially looking at 3 to 4 million barrels a day, will this SPR release ultimately be enough? And the question is, is there enough spare capacity if those losses expand?
1: Yeah, and also the SPR has to be refilled. Goldman Sachs out with a no, you don't need to comment on your competitors, I understand. But they're saying it may blunt the price impact in the near term, Halima, but it's unlikely to change what they call a structural deficit down the road. It sounds like that's what you're reacting to as well. U.S. demand is strong. India, they're they're using more oil now than they did before the pandemic as well and we're still over 100 bucks a barrel
7: right brian again the issue also is this market was as you said tight before we even got into the russia ukraine situation and again i'm looking at the fact that we potentially have two million barrels off the market now from russia when we don't have major consumers of russian energy actually halting those imports if we do get to a situation where we were to see meaningful energy sanctions I think this Russian loss will potentially go out to four million barrels, three to four million. And so the question is, is this SPR release ultimately going to be enough if this Russian conflict continues?
1: Well, of course, we've got the OPEC meeting and OPEC plus meeting today. It's virtual. It's probably going to be another one that's very quick and rubber stamped. And and Halima, when I saw these headlines about the president's uh, reported plan on the SPR, I thought, well, they expect that OPEC is not going to be adding any more incremental barrels to the market. I'm assuming that you would agree with that.
7: Yes, absolutely. I mean, in our conversations on this trip, two factors. You have countries like Saudi Arabia really looking for the United States to provide serious security guarantees. As we were landing in Riyadh, we just had attacks on critical Saudi infrastructure by the Houthis. They are very concerned about these ongoing attacks, which they see as sponsored by Iran. At the same time, you've heard concerns but if Saudi Arabia and UAE, the two countries with remaining spare capacity, were to deplete those barrels now, they could lose control of this market. Again, there is concern that the Russian losses are it's not the end of this. That these could expand. And the question is, do you have sufficient stock absorbers in the case that we are not just looking at 2 million barrels off the market, but we grow to 3 or 4 million barrels? So I think the Saudis and the Emiratis want to hold these barrels in reserve to potentially meet a bigger Russian export loss.
1: We saw Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, I believe it was, meet with the UAE in Morocco on Tuesday. We know there's been pressure on the Saudis. You've been speaking with these people the last week or so. Nobody has the access. You do. Do they, do they feel the pressure from the White House, Salima? Do you feel like they may finally cave to U.S. pressure, or are they going to keep doing what they do and try to keep politics, as they see it, out of it?
7: I mean, I think they're very resolute about wanting the United States to provide significant security guarantees. I think there is concern about the ongoing Iranian nuclear negotiations, that they are too narrow. They're not addressing Iran's sponsorship of groups like the Houthis, not potentially dealing with a ballistic missile program. So I think what they're looking from the United States is clear guarantee that the United States is going to provide some type of security umbrella for the traditional partners in the Middle East if it does this deal with Iran. There are also concerns about removing the Revolutionary Guard from the foreign terrorist organization list. That's what the Iranians have been pushing for in the negotiations. So again, I think the United States now, by releasing these barrels, is signaling that they have no expectation in the near term that they're going to be getting additional supplies out of this region beyond the 400,000.
1: But, I mean, here's the hard part, right? And the politics and geopolitics are hard, is that if the U.S. government signs this JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, for lack of a better name, and in doing so, they they take the Revolutionary Guard off that terrorist watch list, when the Saudis know that the Iranians are the ones funding the Houthi attacks, if the U.S. does that to put more Iranian barrels back on the market, isn't that going to tick off the Saudis enough that if we're looking for their help, that is not the way to get it done.
7: Oh, absolutely, Brian. I mean, I do think that if the United States does take the IRGC off this foreign terrorist list, I think it's going to be very hard to get the Saudis and the Emiratis to go beyond what they're already doing in terms of additional barrels. Again, you have the security concerns, but you also really have this concern about spare capacity. They talk about the situation in the run-up to the financial crisis, where you had OPEC's putting more barrels on the market, and the prices were actually increasing as market participants focused on the fact that there was not a lot of spare capacity out there. So the Saudis and the Emiratis are essentially saying, look, we're going to leave our barrels in reserve until we know the extent of this supply outage and the duration of the supply outage from Russia.
1: Halima Croft in Dubai. We got that meeting today. It's likely to be quick. Probably a rubber stamp. Probably just 400 some plus thousand barrels a day. And we'll see what the president may announce later on today. Halima, great stuff. Have a great trip. Safe travels home. Talk to you soon. All right. You're very welcome. All right. Coming up, home, expensive home. Shocking new stats on the average price of a new house. You have got to hear. And as we head to break, a few other big headlines happening right now. About 39% of eligible voters cast their ballots in a union election at one of Amazon's Alabama warehouses. That is a much smaller turnout than the first election last spring. In that vote, the workers rejected unionization by a wide margin. New estimates on how much the Ukraine war and sanctions will cost the Russian economy. The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development says Russia's economy will shrink by 10% this year suffer slow growth over the longer term and get ready race fans formula one is coming back to las vegas sin city will host a race on saturday night in november 2023 all part of a multi-year deal with f1 200 miles an hour down the las vegas strip once again very cool we're gonna go to a quick break we'll be back right after this Back. Got a eye on a couple of Chinese technology stocks this morning. Those are Baidu and iQIYI. Why are we following them? Well, number one, they're trading down a bit, but it comes after the SEC added both companies to the list of U.S. traded China stocks that could be delisted if they do not let regulators review prior financial results and audits. iQIYI is down seven percent. Baidu's down about two. It is time for your most random but interesting stat of the day. We call it the RBI, and today let's get random on housing. Because this is one of the most amazing and maybe scary things you're going to hear all week. And that is not just TV hyperbole. If you think the price of housing is going up, you are way more right than you know. Look at this. The latest numbers show that the price of a newly built home is now more than five hundred. dollars Now, this is a new house, not a used or what they call existing home that somebody's already lived in. But it's still bonkers, especially when you give that number some context. All right. At the peak of the market, just before the housing bubble burst in 2007, a newly built house would cost you an average of $330,000 across America. After the crash, that fell to a median price of just under $250,000. And if you go further back... We began the millennia in 2000 with a price of just about $200,000 for a shiny new home. So in the price of 22 years, where the price of a newly built house has jumped a staggering 155 percent. Compare that to the price of a new car, which already are expensive enough, but they've only gone up 95 percent in the same 22 years. In other words, homes are crushing the rising prices of cars which I guess is easy when interest rates are low and money was nearly free. But now the price of new homes against the average income is getting back to 2007 like territories and mortgage rates are surging. Let's hope that is not a toxic combination. A price of a new home now more than five hundred thousand dollars on average across America. It better come with a pool, a big one, random, but expensive. Right on deck. If you are like most investors, the first three months of the year have probably left you dazed and confused for so long it's not true. But March did have a little surprise in store for all of us. We're going to tally up the year that has been so far. And some numbers you got to hear. That's next. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. A couple of early morning analyst calls just happening for you. AMD just downgraded to equal weight from overweight at Barclays with a $115 price target. They cite cyclical risk in several end markets. Morgan Stanley cutting its 2022 PC forecast amid macro uncertainty and downgrading shares of Dell and HP while upgrading CDW. Some analyst notes that just crossed, just down. All right, overall, it's been a wild 90 days for stocks. We, of course, had one of the worst starts to a year ever. And then a nice rebound this month. Easy, of course, to kind of get whiplash. So here's where we stand right now. Well, it's been a good month. All the averages are higher in March. The Nasdaq up more than 5%. But because the bad start to the year, a different story for the quarter. Everything pretty much is down on the year and on pace for one of the worst quarterly performances since the first quarter of 2020. So what has done well? Well, not much. Eight of the 11 sectors that we track are down for the quarter Communication and some big tech names like Facebook have been terrible. What has done well? Energy. It has surged this year. It's on pace to cap off its best quarterly gain ever with a nearly 40% move higher. So what do we do in the next three quarters and years? Joining us now is Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President and Private Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Katerina, good morning. Been a wild start to the year, really almost too completely know, January and February were awful March looked pretty good. Huge rebounds for big tech. What are you advising your clients to do right now?
8: Brian, thank you for having me on. You know, it certainly has been a wild ride. And we went into the end of the year having certain risks on the table. We were concerned about earnings valuations. We were concerned about the fact that Fed was about to start tightening. You know, we certainly were paying a lot of attention to inflation. And, of course, war in Ukraine amplified all of those risks. So this is an unprecedented time. Investors should pay more attention to their portfolio than ever before. In the view of Mike Wilson, our chief investment this is the tail end of the market cycle. So if we indeed are in the bear market, the question is, how do we navigate it? And that's what all that we have been talking to investors about, is navigating bear, yeah. bear and, and, rallies.
1: And I know that there's a lot of blame that wants to be placed on the war in Ukraine. But here the, we, we forget even recent history. And that is the stock market crashed, in, not crashed, but fell big in most sectors in January, Katerina. And that was before the war began. In fact, most people... Most research reports on Wall Street did not expect a war to happen in Ukraine. So the market was weak well before the war began. There had to be some kind of fundamental reason for that. And I assume, Katerina, that reason has not gone away. The war, as horrible as it is, is not the cause of stocks falling in January.
8: Brian, I cannot agree with you more. We had the risks, all of the risks that we were dealing with on the on the table. The post COVID, the recovery. When we look at last couple of years and how hot the market got, and we started pulling for the market correction for about 10 percent um, decline right around the summertime. Because when you think about it, you know when you looked at the earnings and the fact that we were fully expecting that the earnings revisions coming into this year and. The, when we started really considering inflation, you know, as a threat that it is not transitory inflation in not transitory in nature, but in fact, inflation that is here to stay, you know, all of these are issues that, you know, we're here going into the beginning of the year and are still here to stay. Yeah. In fact, Ukraine, it just introduced that additional amplification to the risks that we've had. So, what now? Now, Fed is going to be taking action more aggressive than we ever expected. Now, investors have to pay attention to the makeup of their portfolio more than before. And this is definitely a market where money can be made and where we can be profitable, but this is not the time to invest in market indexes. This is the time where we have to look at...
1: Inflation... yeah, Inflation was already burning the, the war just through gasoline and certain parts of that fire, Katerina. So what do we do? What's a what's a good inflation? If we don't think that inflation is going away anytime soon, and I'm not sure anybody does war or not. What's a good inflation hedge?
8: Well, Brian, you, you mentioned real estate, and in my opinion, one of the best inflation hedges is real estate because you have pricing stability, you have ability to increase rental income, and generally it's used as a safe haven um, sector. Gold historically has done really well too, but in my opinion, I would take a yielding asset class like real estate versus a non-yielding asset class as gold any day.
1: Katerina Simonetti of Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Uh, some fascinating points there in what has been a wild 90 days for the markets, really, and the world. Katerina, uh, thank you very much for joining us once again. We'll see you again soon. Alright, folks, that does it for us here at Worldwide Exchange. We will see you tomorrow, 23 hours from now, of course. Same channel. I'll see you on Squawk Box in a few minutes. Talk oil and OPEC. Stock futures flat to maybe a little bit higher. Oil down five bucks a barrel. A lot going on. The Squawk and the Gang will pick up all your coverage next. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.